Welcome to this Peer Voice activity. To access the entire activity, including downloadable slides and transcript, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash AXK. This educational activity is supported by an independent educational grant from Vive Healthcare. Vive Healthcare was not involved in the development of content or selection of faculty for this educational activity. Hello, I'm Andy Ustinoski. I'm an infectious disease physician and clinical researcher based in Manchester in the UK. Welcome to this activity entitled, I Am Me, The Differing Needs of People Living with HIV. Now, I'm really delighted to be joined today by Susan Cole, who's an award-winning HIV activist, broadcaster, writer, public speaker, and most importantly, an advocate for people living with HIV for the last two decades or so. Welcome, Susan, and thanks so much for joining. Thank you so much for inviting me, Andy. I'm delighted to be joining you, as always. Well, I'm really interested in our conversation. So let's kick off straight away. Setting the scene, you know, we've had huge advances in HIV and HIV therapy over my working lifetime, really. So we have multiple regimens with good potency um, and people can have a normal life expectancy. But that's missing part of the picture here. And what I'm really interested in is the importance of individualizing management in people living with HIV. So, Susan, what about the psychological burden of living with HIV and taking viral um, suppressive therapy? Can you give me your thoughts on this? Sure, absolutely. I mean, on, on a personal level, I've been living with HIV for almost 25 years now. And uh, I work very closely with other people living with HIV. And for me personally, um, HIV is just quite a small part of my life. But for many people, particularly people where stigma is affecting their lives, um, sort of having that daily reminder that they're living with HIV can be quite problematic. Sometimes, not always, but it really depends on what else is going on in their lives. No, and I can completely understand that. And I'm not sure my service or, or any service really takes that well into account. I mean, often we're not that good at tailoring therapy to the individual. Um, any top tips of what we should be thinking and what we should be doing to make us better at doing this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's really important to recognise that what else is going on in someone's lives can really impact on their physical health. So I think it's very important for doctors to take the time to find out what else is impacting on, on their patient and have, have that discussion. And I know that with remote care, it can be a little bit more difficult, but I think it's important to actually ask those additional questions, find out what's going on. Really important. You know, from my point of view, I can think about a good regimen that should work, but no regimen will work unless it actually is swallowed or taken by an individual. And so it's making sure we facilitate that as much as possible. Do you think services are doing all they should do in that regard? Are we... Is, is there enough shared care and joint decision-making, do you think? I, I think shared care and joint decision-making is crucially important. And I feel that HIV care is often very much ahead of other disease areas in terms of working in partnership 
with patients, but very often um, many of us have other, other medical issues and it can be problematic sometimes juggling that. So um, I think a, an HIV doctor can play a really important role in helping a patient deal with other medical conditions as well, particularly as we get older. <laughs> Yes, well, that's there's several points in that. I mean, I think hopefully you're right. I think HIV is probably ahead of some other specialties, but it doesn't mean we should rest on our laurels. There's plenty more that we still need to do. Um, you mentioned um, really, or the impression I got was about timelines here, and presumably the priorities and values of someone living with HIV um, today might be different in a month's time or in one year's time or in five years' time. Again, how can we best cope with changing values, changing priorities over time, do you think? I think it's crucially important to, to recognise um, recognize that, that things do change for a patient. Um, and you might see a patient six months before and things may have changed significantly. I mean, I know certainly for women living with HIV, we're disproportionately affected by gender-based violence. So I think it's important often to to ask uh, um, uh, a patient, is there is there anything else going on in your lives? Is there someone that you're afraid of or or causing any problems for you is often something that can be quite difficult to raise. It can be quite difficult to raise. Some people find that the, the topic's quite difficult. Also, what every doctor or what every healthcare worker will say is being time pressured in clinics. So it's about using that time effectively, I guess, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that um, we as patients play can play an important role with that. And I, I certainly recommend that people um, prepare before they go into a consultation, because I know certainly it can be a little, it can get feel a little bit flustered and you can forget about the things that you wanted to discuss. So if a patient takes the time to prepare, I think that could be quite helpful. And lists can also be really helpful in terms of what are the issues that you want to raise with your doctor. I think again, really good tips there. So you interact with an awful lot of people who live with HIV, and I know every single individual is different, but could you give me and the listeners and the watchers to this session a little bit of a tip of what do you think are the most under-met, unmet needs of someone living with HIV in terms of priorities and values? Because people living with HIV are the people living with HIV, and it's important that we understand what resonates with them. So any, any top tips of things that we're not good at? I mean, I, I would. I, I mean, I wouldn't say that you're not good at things. I think you're you're doing a fantastic job. But I think it's important to recognise that there are inequalities both between countries and also within countries. And very often, it's the other social determinants of health that can be impacting on a patient. So it's things like immigration status, poverty housing, so many of those issues are, are affecting uh, many patients and often taking care of our health can drop down the list of priorities. And I recognise that doctors can't fix all of those things, but I think it's quite helpful if doctors are able to signpost people to a direction where they can get additional care just to be able to look after their health. 
And again, I think really interesting points and really important points. I mean, this is about holistic care of an individual living with HIV. But actually, even if we're thinking about antiretrovirals and undetectable viral loads, it's often life events and life circumstances that can get in the way of someone being able to take their regimen effectively. So I think encountering all, or thinking about all these things are really important. Can I extend that a little bit further? There's a phrase that's often used, which is patient-centered care. What does that mean to you? And, and what should we be doing if we want to become more patient-centered, do you think? Sure. I, I know that phrase is used quite a lot and it means different things to, to different people. But I think it's very much the recognition that one size does not fit all. And it goes, I mean, that's very much the case in terms of treatment options as well. It's in terms of potential side effects that someone might be experiencing. And for some people that might be fine, but for other people it can be really problematic. And it's issues like things like weight gain sometimes that, that can be problematic for, for some people. And I've, I've been in situations where patients have said to me that, you know, I, I'm experiencing these side effects, but um, I, I really feel that no one actually listens or realise the impact that it's having on my life. So it's it's having those discussions and, and thinking about how things in, impact on a patient on an individual basis. Great. And I, I'm interested in exploring some of those themes that you're just bringing up there in the, in the second part of this session. Um, but Susan, could I put you on the spot and see if you can summarise some of your thoughts about what we've been discussing in the last 10 minutes or so? Sure. So, I mean, I, I would say some of the most important things is to listen to patients. You know, we are the experts in relation to our, our own bodies. It's important to recognise the different situations that may be affecting someone's health but um, and then also realize that things change between patients. Quality of life is crucially important. We are so much more than undetectable viral load. So I think quality of life has to be central and consider the intersecting societal challenges that a patient may be experiencing and that we work in partnership. But I think in terms of also as a patient, we have a role to play. And I think it's important that we discuss our concerns with doctors and recognise that we're not actually going to get into trouble um, if, if, if we, we find that we're having challenges in taking our medication. So honesty is crucially important. And then we just need to work together. Great. Well, I agree with absolutely everything you've said. Even though you say we do well in HIV, I think there's room for improvement from myself and from my colleagues. If we want to do the best job we can, then I think those are really good tips of a direction that we should go further in. So thank you so much, Susan. Thank you, Andy. Hello everyone and welcome to What's Right For Me, Aligning Clinical Needs of Viral Suppression with Patients' Needs for Quality of Life. My name's Susan Cole, I'm an HIV activist, broadcaster and public speaker and I've been um, living with HIV for about 24 years myself and I'm thrilled to be joined with um, wonderful Dr Andrew Ustianowski from the University of Manchester. Thank you so much Andy for joining me today. 
Well, thank you, Susan. It's always, always a pleasure working with you. So, Andy, I'd like to find out a little bit more about your decision making when when you're deciding in terms of what what medication a patient should be starting on. What are some of the most important things that you consider when managing HIV? Well, that's a good question. Um, and overall, obviously, it changes time by time, individual by individual, but there are some consistent themes, at least in my head. The first thing I want to know is whether the regimen I'm thinking about is going to work against that particular virus. So it's really key to know about any resistance development in the past, any um, primary resistance in that individual. Then there are some other biomedical type baseline factors, I guess. It might be the CD4 count, it might be the viral load, which impact on some regimens. It may be tests like HLA B5701 that are gonna be important, depending on what you're thinking about. Then there are issues related to that individual a little bit more. Are there comorbidities or co-infections that you want to consider or cover with your therapy? What about pregnancy and the wish to conceive? And then there's some more regimen-specific issues, really. Are there any drug-drug interactions that we, need, we really need to be worried about? What about the, the recognized adverse events? Are they things that would be really relevant for that particular individual in front of you? What about convenience, taking with food, without food, without regard to food? There may be issues in certain settings with cost and access. And then there's the really, really key things about matching it to the individual even more. What do they actually really want? What are their main priorities? And a part of this may relate to um, your thoughts about the, uh, the individual's adherence, concordance, compliance, whichever phrasing you want to do. All of these factors are brought into the decision-making or should be brought into the decision-making about which antiretroviral therapy to use. So how do you have those conversations with your patients to actually find out what's going to be best for them in terms of what's going on in their lives? Well, that's a key question, isn't it? So that's, again, it's individualized, but I start off with the same point, um, which is let's work out which regimens should work. When I know which regimens should work against that virus, and there's evidence to support their use in an individual such as the one in front of me, um, then it's about tailoring it to that individual. And usually there's several potential choices. So it is about talking about potential side effects, which side effects are most relevant, which would be acceptable potentially if they were to occur, which would be absolutely unacceptable to that individual. What about the co-medications? What about the comorbidities? Um, and ultimately shared decision-making. So if everything else is in equipoise, there are several regimens which would be as good as each other, then let's do shared decision-making with the individual in front of us. Because if we do that, someone is going to, I hope, find it easier to take the therapies. If they take the therapies well, they'll work well. If they can't take the therapies well, for whatever reason, then we're not gonna get a good result. Absolutely, very important points. But I know for some patients, it can be quite difficult to speak up uh, about their concerns uh, and particularly for people from um, that may be having other issues going on in their lives and it could be issues in terms of their culture where it might seem inappropriate to to challenge a doctor 
how do you go about actually putting people at ease so they can feel comfortable to have these conversations with you? Well, none of us are perfect at this and we've all got room to improve, I'm sure. It's about stepping down from being a doctor and a scientist and thinking about an individual in front of you. Um, try and use open-ended questions. Try and tease if there are any issues. Use that non-verbal communication signals that hopefully you're receiving that things aren't quite right and drill down. Someone won't necessarily talk to you fully the first time you've met. Build that rapport. Maybe come back to some of the issues in the future, in that same interaction or in a future interaction. It's about tailoring our interaction with that individual to get the best result for them and for us and tailoring the therapy so that we get the best result for them and for us as well. Absolutely. Very, very good advice indeed. But I, I'm, I'm very conscious that sometimes people, most people switch their medication at, at some point. I know I've certainly had many different combinations over the years. So when you think about switching medications or when you and your patient consider switching, what are some of the variables that you take into consideration? Well, some of the same things. Is there any resistance there or any possible resistance there? Because there's no point embarking on a therapy which perhaps is not going to be fully potent or indeed not fully suppress the virus and then encourage more resistance as time goes on. The next key factor in my head is, well, why are we switching in the first place? Now, it may be because of an intolerance, in which case we really do need to find a regimen which is unlikely to give the same intolerance. And luckily, we have a lot of different potentials in almost everybody um, and a lot of different options. It may be because of drug-drug interactions. And again, the same thing. What are the other options that we can do? If there's been an issue that needs someone to switch, then the primary consideration is, well, what was that issue and how can we avoid it in the future? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I've, I've spoken to uh, a lot of people who have been um, interested in switching, but some people of say to me, well, you know, I've, I've got an undetectable viral load and my CD4 count seems quite high. So I'm scared that if I switch, you know, what's going to happen? And will I be able to go back to my old regimen if I find that I prefer it? Is that something that you discuss with your patients? Absolutely. And I can completely understand that some people will not want to rock the boat. Um, however, there's in most individuals, there's many combinations which I would expect to give us a long-term undetectable viral load if the adherence is good. In terms of potentially going back to a regimen, if you stick your toe in and try something different and it doesn't work out or you're not happy and you want to go back to what you knew before, in many circumstances, you could potentially do that. Obviously, if resistance has developed, then that's not going to be a possibility. Um, if there was an intolerable adverse event, then that wouldn't be a possibility. So it really depends on the scenario, but there's many, many options. When I first worked in HIV, perhaps there's only one or two options per individual because I'm getting quite old now. But nowadays there's often many different options. And so I think it's important to relay that information and give people reassurance that it isn't one size fits all or we have one strike and then we're out. We can carry on adjusting things until we find the right thing 
for the right person. Fantastic. And I do agree that we, we're in a so much better position now when there are so many different options. And that's it's really reassuring to know that in, in, in many circumstances, it's, it may be possible for someone to go back if that's something that's um, stopping them from considering switching. But talking about different options, I mean, we, we have so much variety now. Can you tell me a little bit about the, the profiles of different HIV treatment regimens that, that we would never have been having this conversation years ago. No, and I actually wouldn't have thought in my working lifetime I'd have these different potential options and potential different regimens. So obviously we've got a lot of oral tablet regimens, um, almost all of them, relatively few tablets and taken um, um, often once a day. Not exclusively, but that's been a big advance over my working lifetime. In the future, we may get oral therapies that have uh, a longer acting profile and perhaps can be taken once a week or maybe even longer than that in the end. And obviously a big shift recently has been the advent of injectables. And what's important here is not one size fits all again. Injectables are really well accepted, good re patient recorded outcome measures in those that have self-sought it or have been put forward for it and consider it, and I think that's excellent. But it, at the moment, it doesn't work for everybody. It would require coming up to the hospital at least every two months. The injections can be quite large. Having said that, you know, people really like it. And my experience with people on the injectables um, who have self-selected to a large degree is they really like it. As we go forward, I think there'll be more longer acting therapies. There potentially will be more injectable therapies. Some of these will work for some people and be ideal for some people. Some of them will work for other people and be ideal for them. The longer acting, the injectables, I think do allow us to look at the stigma, the daily reminding of someone having HIV because they have to take that tablet every day. There are perhaps issues with disclosure and hiding tablets, things that perhaps we haven't delved into as much as we should have done in the past because we didn't have options to to move away from that. So not only more options, but actually allowing us to explore things in more ways and hopefully resulting in a better outcome for everybody. That, that's very exciting indeed. And it's certainly an issue that has come up for years um, with people saying that they're hiding their medications or people who are traveling a lot and, and don't feel comfortable with regards to taking their medications with them. And can I ask your thoughts on the best practice for patient-clinician collaboration in, in order to establish what's right for me as, as a patient? How do you go about it? Well, again, a good question. I think a default position, unfortunately, for many healthcare workers and doctors is very biomedical. You know, let's give you these tablets. Oh, look, your viral load's undetectable. Thanks very much. Let's see you in however many months. That's not the right way to holistically care for someone, but indeed to keep that viral load undetectable if that's what we're wanting long-term. It's about working with someone. It's about working out what is right for them. And so it is that joint decision-making. It's about being honest and open about what's coming around the horizon, what other options are available. It's about inquiring in an, in an open fashion about issues, about side effects, so really it's about becoming patient-centered and having shared care. And that to me is the key thing, being open to those discussions 
and being less purely biomedical. I think that's a very good point. And if I may, can I ask you to summarise <laughs> some, uh, some of these points that you've raised in terms of the most important issues? Of course, very happy. I mean, as a clinician, my first thought is, I want to use medications that are going to work. So is the virus susceptible? Is there evidence supporting it in the scenario that I'm encountering here in terms of CD4 viral load? I need to consider the individual, their comorbidities, their co-medications, drug-drug interactions, co-infections, that type of thing. In some individuals, we'll need to consider the potential barrier to resistance. And if there are issues with being able to take that regimen reliably, then we perhaps need to use therapies and regimens that have a higher barrier to resistance. So we keep all the options available for the future. But importantly, no treatment's going to work optimally if someone doesn't actually take it, whether it's an injection, whether it's a tablet, whether it's daily, whether it's long acting. It's about matching the potential regimen to the individual. And vitally, what that involves is shared decision-making. Remember, the person in front of you is the one who's taking the medications and not me. Thank you so much for joining me today, Andy. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I'd like to thank you, the audience, for, for taking the time um, to be with both Susan and myself. I hope you found it useful and I hope there are some good tips that perhaps you can reflect on or bring into your practice. Thank you very much. This has been an activity published by Peer Voice.